Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. My next guest has had a fascinating story from army ranger to tech founder to CEO of a NASDAQ-listed company. Sonny Vanderbeck is a, is a lovely bloke. He's got a fascinating story about how he started a business in the IT world uh, back in 96 when the internet was just getting started and rode through the turbulent times of the tech bubble bursting in the early 2000s and going on to ultimately have a very, very successful exit and ultimately starting up a private equity firm to help other people also exit and, and grow bigger and better companies. You know, one of the thing I love, things I love about a guy like Sonny is that he's able to talk about the entire process, this entire experience of being a founder and bootstrapping through to being a company achieving 40%, and, and I want you to hear me straight on this, 40% growth every 120 days. I mean, this, this company just achieved the sort of numbers that most people can't imagine. And you as a business owner can probably imagine some of the problems that come with that growth. What I love about Sonny's story here is he starts to talk about some of the key challenges that you have when you're growing a business like that, but also what are the key issues when you're trying to sell a company like this? And what are the problems he, he actually shares with us? One of his tips on, on why he thinks most deals fail and ultimately how to solve some of those problems when you're in your own deal. It's a fascinating journey. I hope you enjoy it. This is Sonny Vanderbeck. Hi, Sonny. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure indeed. I, uh, I've been really looking forward to unpacking your story, actually. At, um, you've got a really interesting background. And you know, I've had a few guys um, on the show that have had a, a military background and then gone into the whole entrepreneurial space. And um, you know, clearly, you've gone on to this next level with um, you know, an investment company and all sorts of really interesting things. But um, maybe we could go back to the sort of beginning and kind of what led you to ultimately getting into business? Yeah, so I, you know, I think what led me into getting in business must have been almost genetic. Um, I was the kid in the neighborhood that was, you know, selling lawn mowing jobs and finding the other kids to actually do the work. And uh, <laughs> like the, the early like family origin stories at Thanksgiving are all these funny stories of me as a 12 year old with a bike repair shop. and. Um, so I don't really know. It was just it what got it's what got my attention. Um, and interesting, I noticed even even later in life, you know, um, when I was running data return, Tish and I would go on vacation. At, I'm in Jamaica, and we're passing the first big container yard I'd ever seen in person. And I got curious, and I'm like, well, how does that work? And how do they make money? And who do their customers? And all of these things. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's just who I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I, I, I love, you know, what I'm hearing here too is this curiosity of the mind, this, 
you know, it's 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 a trait that I see a lot with successful entrepreneurs. You know, there's curiosity about how do things work and what are the problem and how do this get solved. So, um, so I, I've got to ask the obvious question. You know, like being an entrepreneur is kind of very open ended and uncertainty, fluidity. You know, you could probably use a hundred adjectives here, but. What, what then led you to go into the military? Because the, seemingly that would have been very, very regimented and controlled and, you know, is a, well, that, that almost seemed like opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, so, so I started college pretty early. I was 16 when I started college. Um, and after a year of that, I realized like, that was not at all for me. Like what I, was, what I thought I was going to get out of college, um, undergrad chemistry is not exciting. <laughs> not even a little bit. Um, and so I just wanted to go do the thing that was as far away from what I was doing as I could imagine and, and maybe kind of the hardest thing I could imagine. Um, and one of the misnomers about all of the military is that it's very regimented. Okay. Um, there, you know, I probably would have been thrown out of the regular army because um, I say stuff like I have an out loud voice. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be too stubborn to quit when I went through ranger selection. Um, so I ended up as an army ranger and that environment was very fluid, very entrepreneurial. Everything changed all the time. Um, very high performance team. So the, because I said so kind of military stuff, we didn't have a lot of that. Um, we had a lot of, peak performance, accomplish the mission, those kinds of things. Like the core values were very much around accomplish the mission, not around, um, you know, follow every rule. And, and interestingly, they were smart enough to be able to dig into the psyche of who could make it. Because when we had dumb army stuff, they always gave us a good reason. Like they'd kind of call us in. They're like, okay, y'all, look, we're about to have to do army stuff. and I know you don't like it and I don't like it either, but here's why we're going to do it. So let's do it Ranger style and be better than anybody else, even at the dumb army stuff. And so what would we do? Well, we can do that too. And we would do it and then it would be over and we could go back to doing our, you know, black helicopter stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> that environment, I like really thrived in that environment. Um, regular army. Cause I said, so I don't know if that would have ended very well. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I do get it. <laughs> it uh, I've had family and friends in the military and everything else, and it's interesting to see the different sort of personality types um, and how they might react in different scenarios. Um, it's it's it leads me also to one of the interesting thing that sort of popped up in a conversation recently, where I was asked um, what I was asked about what's one of the key features for people getting into business? Um, like, what's one of the key traits they need to be comfortable with to be successful? And um, what I answered at the time, and you know, this is probably one of just many, was um, the ability to deal with uncertainty. Um, you know, this this whole idea that well, you don't necessarily know if you've got the right idea or whether it will be successful or how clients will respond to things or whatever it might be, but you're okay with the uncertainty because you know you're heading in the right direction and you'll you'll be flexible, you'll adjust, you'll evolve as you go. And, you know, I, I stated that as one of the things I thought was important, but do, what are your thoughts around that? You know, I, I think um, uncertainty, I often use the word ambiguity, right? Most yeah. of the things that make it to our desk 
they're not black and white. If they were, they never would have made it to the desk. Um, and then in the early days, the the willingness to to sign up to deliver something that you're sure that your organization can deliver, but you've never done it before. <laughs> yeah. That that instinct of um, like, can I find the right balance metaphorically between you know the engineering crowd, the product crowd, and the sales and marketing crowd, and being able to go, oh, we can definitely do that. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> and I would like regularly go back. So so let me back up. Like my first company, we started when we were I was twenty three, quit Microsoft at the time. You know, best job in the country. Everybody thought we were crazy. We were broke 20-year-olds eating ramen, talking about this internet thing was going to change the world. Yep. Um, turns out it did, and we were had a good business out of it. But like the early days, so I had this amazing CTO, this guy named Jason. Um, and Jason could do nearly anything. Like if it was possible, he could probably figure it out. So I took that as a license to go tell customers yes. I was like, yeah, we can do that. And so I would come home and literally like Jason and I were roommates too. So I would come home and be like, hey, Jason, you'll never guess what I sold today. And he'd <laughs> slam the door and yell and he'd be mad. Rightly so, because I signed us up for the impossible. Yeah, yeah. But I had trust in his capabilities and, and ultimately in the team that, that we built at the company to actually figure it out. And, and because of where we were in the environment, no one had ever done these things before. So it, it wasn't like... The customers weren't also tolerant of, yeah, it took us a little longer to figure it out. Um, so that not just being able to tolerate uncertainty or ambiguity, but actually thriving in it, leaning into this ambiguity of, I don't know how this is going to play out. Let's go, right? And, and to find some joy in it. Um, and importantly, to, you know, if you're going to have a spouse, my advice would be to like have a spouse that can hang with this stuff too. It's, <laughs> it's, it gets a little like she's come close to writing a book about the journey too. She and I met um, and started dating the same month I started my first company, some you know twenty five years ago. Uh, so so yeah, that that ambiguity because what we're trying to do is shape a new reality out of this ambiguity. Like it's fuzzy and there's no focus and no one can see. And what are we doing? We're making a new reality. Um, so if everything's crystal clear, maybe there's no opportunity for us. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's it that whole risk versus reward, right? It's the 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 counterbalance, right? If there was no risk in it, there would be no reward. It'd be worth nothing because it's anybody could do it. But it's uh, yeah. it's interesting, you know that that ability to lean in and thrive in uncertainty. How much of that do you think is is a personality trait that you're born with versus something that can be taught or learned? You know, like most things, um, it, it's certainly a bit of both um, and, and probably not so much born with, but who were your friends growing up and what were your parents like and what lessons did you get? Um, you know, I had, I was very fortunate to have a pretty stable life growing up. So I didn't like worry for stuff like food. I didn't, that just wasn't, I just not a thing. I, now, when I got in the Rangers, I worried about food all the time. I was hungry and it was cold. And, but it, so, so I think you, if you are comfortable with sort of who you are and where you are in the world, you're more likely to be able to take what looks like risk to other people Yes, as well. Um, but I do think it's a learnable skill. It's, it's like anything, um, you know, something you're afraid of, like immersion therapy kind of works, not for everybody. 
but it kind of works. You get, you know, a little bit higher and a little bit higher, or maybe you can hold the spider now, whatever your thing happens to be. Um, if you take risk that you're uncomfortable with and you get some reward out of it, or even if it's just not reward, it just turned out to not be catastrophic. Yeah, you didn't die. <laughs> yeah, you didn't die. So maybe you could do it again. Yeah. Um, I do think there is a bit of the optimist versus pessimist bias that helps a lot here. Um, the, the willingness to believe the best of the world, like that things are going to be okay. Yep. Um, I think that helps a lot too. Yeah. It's, um, you, you're ringing the bell for me so many times already in this, uh, in this chat. It's, um, you know, I know with our company, we, we jump, we jump into lots of different projects from time to time. And it's, I was saying to one of my, the ladies in our team that, um, she said, oh, geez, I've never done this sort of thing before. And I said, yes, but you're a smart person and you have the ability to ask questions. And if you get it wrong, nobody's going to die. There's no dinosaur chasing you here. So don't, there's nothing to be afraid of here. And I think that with your ability to explore things in your level of intelligence, you'll work it out. You'll work it out. So don't don't freak out about this. It's not a problem. It's new, yes, but pretty soon you'll be through this and it won't be new anymore. And you know, so, I, I, you know, life's a change in a modern society, right? Like it's not everything is on the line with every single thing we do and our lives are under threat. That, that whole fight or flight kind of mechanism is still active, but it's, probably not as required in the environment we live and work in these days. That's not a T-Rex. That's a customer. Yeah. That's it's going to be a pet, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Sonny, I'm curious, you know, one of the other things other than um, a, a, an individual or an entrepreneur's ability to deal with ambiguity, one of the other kind of common traits I see a lot of is that successful people have had either one or, or numerous really great mentors or big influences in their life that you know, either helped them through a challenge or have just been consistently there for them. It, uh, has there been anyone like that in your life? Yeah. Um, I'll start with nearly everybody. Like I learned so much from the people around me. This is back to the curiosity. Like there's all these people with these amazing gifts. What can I learn? Um, so, you know, the people that I learned how to express love and compassion from just as important as some business tactic about how to sell and how to organize marketing and all these other things. Um, so I find that we have lessons everywhere all the time. Um, and like, don't miss the opportunity to take the learning from from nearly anybody. And I've had some, you know, some critical moments um, along the way. So that's sort of broadly on the positive side on the, oh, it, it just got deep and it's a little scary moment. Um, I've certainly had my share of those too. Um, and I can think of two specific conversations and one just sort of general, like back to my comment about the spouse, like just I just got lucky on this front because she's always been like, whatever you want to do makes you happy. I'm totally cool with it. I just want you to be happy and I'm here for you. Yeah. And she's like, she really means it. So that's awesome. Like, I just have that. Like, so my risk profile of, oh, it didn't go very well. She's like, well, that sucks. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, so, so that's been like this constant. Um, 
there were uh, two conversations that come to mind in addition to that, that, that when you ask about it. So one, um, the context for me going into the Rangers, like, so I was a computer science major um, and I look like a computer science major. I got smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. I ate, you know, pizza and drank beer and exercise was like walking to class when I went. Like I was in bad, I was in bad shape, not just like average shape. I was in bad shape. So I go in the military, I'm in boot camp, and I'm like barely keeping up. Um, and, and I was pretty intellectual in high school. I wasn't playing sports. I was outside all the time, but, but certainly wasn't in the gym all the time. Um, and I remember that moment where I was just like week after week of just barely keeping up. And this was just like plain old infantry basic training, kind of general conditioning. And I went to one of the drill sergeants and I was like, hey, look. Now, I didn't I didn't use these words. I'm going to paraphrase. I get punched for these words. Um, I was like, hey, look, man, like, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm just barely keeping up with this regular army stuff. Like maybe this whole ranger thing was a goofy pipe dream and I just need to let it go. And he looked over at me and he goes, well, they hadn't killed you yet. Like, no, <laughs> I guess it hasn't. And he goes, well why don't you just keep going until you can't go anymore? And I was like, okay, I can do that. And guess what? I just kept going until I couldn't go anymore. And I looked up and I'm in the Rangers and I'm in charge of people and we get cool black helicopter stuff. And like, it was awesome. And all I had to do was just like, keep going. And that, like that entrepreneurial moment, um, like that's there all the time. It is only people who have made payroll understand what it's like. Like it's a binary thing. It's either on you or it's not on you. I think generally people don't understand how many days there are where you just have to figure out what's the next thing I can do and do that. Because if you think about the big picture, it's too much. You just can't, can't hang with it. So, so I think that, that bit of like momentary mentorship that lives with me forever well, just, just keep going and don't give up was very useful. And I had another one, um, you know, along the way we took that company public um, and I was CEO of a public company in my twenties, um, which was, that's its own story and podcast. Wild, wildness. <laughs> um, and then half our customers disappeared and we were 90 days from profitability, but then it turned into a mess. Was this data return? Yeah. Yeah. This was data returns. So okay, my cool. first so like utter chaos going on. We're public. Like I've had no tools or skills for this. And we grew 40% a quarter for three and a half years. So 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 give me some context around this, because people are hearing this this company, we've jumped from Rangers to into this business and it's public. It's like wow. Like so in a nutshell, I mean, how did that start? Did you start it on your own? Were there founders? What did what did the first couple of years look like? Um, so I started it with a couple of co-founders from Microsoft. Um, we were all good at different things, um, which which turned out really well. Um, and I was the CEO. And, and our business, to, to paraphrase, was mission-critical web infrastructure. So if you were, our customers were people like H&R Block, online tax filing. They make all of their money in four days out of the year. The, yep. the day everybody gets their you know, W-2, it's going to get a return. And a couple of days around the 15th when everybody can't file their taxes any later. And if it breaks during that, like it could be 20 or 30% of their income. Wow. So very high stakes web facing applications. 
surgical scheduling, um, insurance processing, like that kind of stuff. And generally on technologies that were just released that barely work. So that was where we fit in the world. Um, so that we, we hit a spot where there was a big need for that. And so we grew revenue 40% every quarter. Wow. Um, so we doubled headcount like every 120 days for years. Jeez. That's, that just sounds like an HR nightmare to me. I, uh, yeah. How do you, as a company, deal with that kind of growth? Um, yeah. How do you deal with that kind of growth? Um, a high bar on hiring helps. I tried the opposite. Don't do that. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you end up with some new rules, like you're not allowed to have teams where everybody in the entire team has been at the company for less than 90 days. Um, like, ask me how I learned that rule. Um, I went in this group and I'm like, what are y'all doing? This is like literally the opposite of the way we're organized to do this and our strategy. And they're like, well, where we all came from, that's how we did it. And you're like, okay, this is on me. Like, I should have anticipated this problem. Um, part of it is being willing to hire extraordinary people. So there was a moment where I, I met somebody who um, was this old gray hair. He must have been like 40 or something like that. <laughs> so old. <laughs> right. And he had a little gray. I'm like, oh, my God. Is like grandpa? Like, um, but he'd done like five early stage businesses. And it was just one of those like somebody up in the universe somewhere is looking out for me. I happened to, the sales line rang and it was late, but I was still there because welcome to be an entrepreneur. And I picked it up and I started chatting with this guy who was talking about being a customer and we just sort of hit it off. And it turns out he was local and he helped me build a business plan. Now we already had a business, but we just didn't have a business plan. We just kind of felt our way into it. And um, long story short, at the end of it, we ended up giving him a, a, a big chunk of the company um, and paid him more than all three founders combined. Wow. Well, oh my God, that's crazy talk. You should never do that. Don't give any of your equity away and people shouldn't cost that much. That one move repeated over and over again of find extraordinary people who know what they're doing and let them do it and provide the container for them and coaching and vision and strategy. And there are places where you'll have something unique to add. Um, but if your executive team is not teaching you, you've underhired. Yeah. There are things I can teach them, but about their, and I'm talking about, about their discipline. My, you know, leader of marketing, the chief marketing officer should be on the whiteboard teaching me how to do marketing. Yeah. And if it's the inverse, we've lost the thread here. So we repeated accidental success a bunch of times and turns out it wasn't accidental. Like that's a, that's a pattern of um, extraordinary people get extraordinary outcomes. What do you have to do to get them? I, I was in conversation with a CEO the other day um, and, and we're, we're in the investment business. So I spend most of my time talking to other CEOs of, of good sized companies. And the conversation we were having, I was asking this question, I said, what if you could have one of the 10 best people in the country for this job? And it was apparent in that conversation that that wasn't part of the consideration set. Like their mind was not open to the idea of, no, I could do a nationwide search 
and pick out of the top 10, there's going to be a best fit for the stage and size and culture and all those things. One of the best 10 people in the country. And they were, it just that, but no one had ever said to them, you can want that. Yeah. Which is a, which is a funny thing. Cause I think, you know, we, we all talk, I think in business and life about decide what the end game should look like. What's the goal. And then we work backwards. Right. So if the end game is we want the absolute best people, I mean, it's it's funny. I just think that that thinking seems to be quite common a lot of, of among a lot of business owners and executives, but we don't necessarily apply it in all situations where we should. That's right. Um, I had two friends, um, one of whom was an extraordinary fit for an executive position at the other friend's company, um, and the incoming executive called me and said, I'm not taking the job. I'm like, what are you doing, man? You're perfect for this. He said, he won't give me any equity. And I called the other friend and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, this guy's perfect for this job. And he's like, yeah, I'm just not, I own all the equity. I'm not giving him any equity. And I'm like, you realize like, if you want one of the best in the country, they're going to want equity. Like just given the nature of the role. And I'm being, I know I'm being a little sketchy. I'm trying to protect both friends. Um, like the the right candidate won't take the work without some sort of equity upside. Yeah. Um, and it just wasn't their style. They're like, no, I'm going to keep it and own it. And I understand um, that pattern has not worked for me. The pattern that's worked for me has been whatever I have to do to get extraordinary people, get as many of them as I can. I, I had these moments at Data Return where people would come to me and I was I was proud of these moments. I was like, that's this means we nailed it. And so I was the smartest person at the last place I worked and it wasn't even close. And I don't know what to do here because I'm having a hard time keeping up. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, everybody, I was just telling them, I go like, everybody feels the same way. Everybody's like, oh my God, these people are amazing. I got to go harder. Yeah. Um, I got great people. I repeated myself a lot about what's our culture, what's our strategy, what makes us different? What are we trying to accomplish in the world? Uh, and, and, you know, look, it, it starting an internet company in 1996, yeah. they thought we were crazy. Like everybody thought we were nuts. So part of it was just go, well, it was timing. Yeah, it was timing. And I was willing to eat some glass for three years waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still remember 96 being at university with my friend saying, have you heard about this internet thing? And we went to a computer in the library where I was having to still borrow books and take them out to write my assignments. And uh, and he's, it was so basic at the time, but it was like, I, I was sitting there going, oh, but what do you use it for? You know, like, I mean, at the time I could not wrap my head around where this might go, you know, in terms of the opportunity that it presented. But it's, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating time. And, of course, that led into the big dot-com bubble bursting, all the rest of it. So how did that? sort of piece of history play out in your story? Yeah, so um, it was pretty rough. So that was about half of our customer base, right? The big, so I would say our customers were generally the world's thousand largest companies and the world's thousand largest internet companies for, for different reasons, but we were a good fit. That was kind of, that 2000 was our hunting base. So the half that were internet companies, a lot of them had economic problems really fast, sort of over that period of time. Um, so we had to reorganize our world and figure out how to get where we were going And it, you know, tuning up a business to get to profitability is not the same as 
you've built a machine that generates 40% growth and doubling of headcount every 120 days. And it does that very well, like clockwork every quarter. We got these results. And then the world shifted so much and so fast that it was just like, <gasps> it all stopped. We were 90 days away from profitability. Wow. And, you know, we look, we still had some money um, and we had, um, we had actually had a deal arranged with one of our investors um, that, so one of our investors was Compact Computer Company. We shared a board member, deep cultural fit. Our technical teams were integrated with theirs um, and they were going to acquire us. It was the perfect deal. And the same weekend that that deal was supposed to close and get announced, instead Hewlett Packard and Compaq merged and our deal was off. Can I ask a quick question there? Because and, and this, is, this is clearly a major part of the history of this business and your journey. But I'm just curious, the, the relationship with Compaq, you said it was ob an ob you know, obviously a, a really good fit. W when you st first started engaging with Compaq in whatever form that was, did you have in your mind that they could be a good acquisition partner or a good merger partner, however you wanted to frame the transaction? Was that in your mind back in those days? Did you, did you feel that kind of synergy early on or was it something that evolved over time? Yeah, with 40% quarterly growth, there's no time for thinking about <laughs> anything but 40% quarterly growth. And look, to, to be like really clear about this, we didn't start the business for money. We started it because we had to. It was just literally like couldn't sleep, would wake up every morning. It was all you could think about, completely consumed. Same reason I started the current business. Yep. Uh, you couldn't help it. So we weren't really thinking about economics and all that. That stuff, as we had been public for a while, started to become in the conversation um, and, and sort of watching how the world was developing. Um, it was clear to us that our business was a better fit as part of another company. Like that was the, the real learning. Okay. Um, so, so no advance. It was, they were a, a stakeholder. They were a part of our ecosystem already. We were raising capital. We also raised capital for Microsoft and from level three, a big communications company, because like those were the big players in our ecosystem. And I had this piece of advice, um, that the short version was always make your shadow bigger than you are. And there's a lot to unpack in that. And it was everything from branding to product positioning. Like we could talk for three hours about that, but it was one of those, like put it on the wall, engrave it. Um, having Compaq and Microsoft and level three as investors in a new wild west territory where there were no leaders and nobody really knew what the hell was going on brought a tremendous amount of credibility. When I walked into a room at a fortune 50 company and I said, these are our investors. People went, okay, they're real checkbox. Like, and they moved on from the, well, who are these people? Yeah. And just, and that was really important in that stage, particularly given that it was, they were giving us our, their most mission critical stuff and they needed to not know we were still running out of the bottom floor. When we upgraded from the little one room in the rent house, <laughs> we moved to a house I bought in our business. We had like 10 employees on the bottom floor of the house with no air conditioner. Um, like it, look, it was, this is real bootstrappy guys. Yeah. Um, actually, I remember 
when um, our president, Michelle, went rogue, we made it to July in Texas. She went rogue. She said she was going to lunch. She really drove to Home Depot and bought an air conditioner. We didn't want to spend the money on it because every dollar we spent on marketing worked. Yes. It was like, let's just spend everything. More ramen, no air conditioning, get more marketing. Like you're 24 or something. You can do that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, so the real driver was they were a major stakeholder for us um, and, and good to have in our, in our ecosystem. So that deal blew up because that happens all the time in deals. Um, and I think if we had run that deal a little harder and, and really understood this idea that time kills deals. Yeah. And we had been ready a week earlier, probably would have closed. Yeah. For a billion dollars. I, I just want to pick up that point again because you, you – it's something that I, I say a lot as well, time kills deals. And, and I just, pe people don't, I think unless you've been through a transaction and particularly one that has actually failed, it's hard to understand the importance of that one line. You know, and it's from, from all parties' perspective, right? People get deal fatigue. The longer it goes, the more reasons people find to sink the deal or have problems or kick up a stink about something that's, you know, just, it is such a critical factor for anybody listening to this who's thinking about selling their company one day. Um, well, well, actually, rather than me stating this, Sonny, maybe, maybe I can ask you, like, you've done a lot of deals, you've been through them yourself. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you, you know, if you're thinking of selling your company, what are some of the critical factors so that time doesn't kill your deal? Well, it's, I think part of it is to understand um, that everybody needs to have a sense of urgency. And, and there is some dimensions of it, the sort of internal factors you mentioned. Um, but I think the, the exogenous shocks happen more often than we realize, right? So no one would have told you public company A is buying public company B and they've been a shareholder for most of the company's lifetime and they share a board member and there's a single document remaining to be signed. One more signature and the deal is closed. No one would have said, well, you need to hurry up, like hurry up. Cause what if they change their mind? Like that they're a big company like that, that ship has sailed. What you can't deal with is system shocks. You can't anticipate them. You can't predict them. You don't know what's going to happen when, when they show up. Um, so think about, Think about the people that got their deal closed the week before COVID started shutting things down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just one week. And the people that didn't, and it was going to happen next week, but then the news and, well, the airlines are closed, and then people start to get scared, and they should go, we should wait. And it's rational for them to want to wait. Like, what does this mean? What do we do? So I actually have more concern about the exogenous shocks that, just every bit of time that goes by, some random stuff can come your way. Yeah. Because um, what you also have to do is to not try to hurry things up, right? It, it, if you run too fast, you end up focusing only on economic factors. You skip over lots of detail in both directions. And maybe you get your deal done and hate yourself. Yeah. Like, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book um, 
So just for context, I wrote a book called Selling Without Selling Out, How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul, because I did it wrong the first time, got it kind of right the second time. I'm in the business now, like trying to get good outcomes. Um, so there's a ton of lessons learned. Like the first time that we actually got a deal done, we didn't really do any reverse diligence on the buyer. We just sort of believed the narrative that was out in the world about the buyer, and it turned out to not be true at all. Well, we got 20% of another public company was the form of the transaction. We got basically a big slug of their company. And then we really got in in detail and we're like, wow, okay, this is not a culture fit. We don't like the way we, they execute. We're worried about X, Y, and Z. And the way they conduct themselves is the opposite of us. But we just, we're like one of the biggest shareholders in the company now. Like, what do we do? So don't, this is not about going too fast either. You try to close the thing in a week. That I've seen occasionally in, in our business, somebody's like, okay, so I sent you the financials, let's close in two weeks. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like this is, there is a set of steps. So I'm going to give you a couple of things. So one, get ready in advance. Before you go to actually do something, you got to get organized. Um, the more organized you are, the better your process, whether your process is a formal process or an informal process is going to go. If every time a potential buyer or investor asks you a question, it takes you three weeks to get an answer. That's a problem. That's going to drag your thing out over a really long period of time. And it's going to cost you a chip every time you do that. Because they're like, why does it, why don't I have this document yet? All I asked for was a sales pipeline and it's been weeks. Like that should be a 24 hour turnaround. Yeah. Come to find out they don't have one because they don't do pipeline and now they're trying to build it but they don't really know what one is and then they give you a list of leads not a sales pipeline and now you're like oh wait a minute i thought this thing had revenue well, tell me again why revenue is growing and like you create a bunch of problems for yourself so you've got to get ready in advance and get really organized in advance um, and set aside some time to deal with the back and forth so so this is like uh, for lack of a better metaphor there's a little bit of goldilocks in this if you try to rush it you can get some bad outcomes or you can freak the other side out. Just don't, don't foot drag, like get this thing done. It's 90 to 120 days is how long it ought to take. Um, in at least for our side stuff. So, so we've investment business. We invest in companies in the U S that are eight to 50 million in profit. Um, so, so these are decent sized businesses, you know, probably generally 40 to 500 million in revenue kind of in that range. Um, that's about how long one of those things take. If they're buying, you know, if one of our portfolio companies is buying a company that's 7 million in revenue and a million of profit, like it shouldn't take 90 days. There's just less things, fewer things to figure out. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, no, that's cool. I think, I think you've sort of touched on a few things there around how to manage that process, but also a little bit of expectation on how long it should take. It's, it's, it's funny whenever we've sold businesses, I say to all of our prospective clients, you've got to get, allow, you've got to give me up to twelve months. Like we, we might get it done in a couple of months, we could get it done in six months. But in your mind, allow for the fact that that this process you haven't started yet. There's going to be a prep phase. We're going to be getting organised. We need to build out the campaign. We want to go to market. There's early discussions. Like I say, if we get it all done and wrapped up in six months, happy days. But there's a due diligence process in there as well. So it's so much of this, I think, is. For, for business owners who have never been through it, they don't understand what a typical process looks like or should look like. 
Um, and so having the right expectation and it is important for them to then be able to manage their emotion. And I think that's actually one of the things that that causes people to come unstuck. It's, you know, we, we had a client just the other day even who, who is a husband and wife team and, and, you know, one of the couple were getting frustrated saying, you know, look, this, this is taking too long. You know, it's, you know, these, these buyers are, seem to be, you know, and there was a back and forth on it and said, look, okay, hang on a second. I get it. You're feeling frustrated, but we're actually seven months into a process and we've only actually been on the market for, you know, a couple of months. Like really, like we prepped, we waited a little bit because of the timing, we pulled the trigger. These guys are actually, yeah, they're probably a week or so behind where we want them to be, but they're actually not that far out. So how do you manage all that emotion? You know, and, and we're doing all the, this all the time with business owners, just holding their hand really and assuring them that they're actually on the right path. There might be a few potholes, but yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing. And I, I, I'm curious from your perspective, Sonny, like having been through that yourself and, and probably had a couple of sleepless nights, um, how, how important is it for you to be able to connect with buyers or people on the other side of the table now as, as an acquirer? You know, are you, is this an important thing? How do you help manage the emotions of the people that, uh, you know, on the other side of the deals you're doing? Yeah, so let me give just a little bit of context for like, hey, what do I do as a day job today? Um, so sold it to the wrong people the first time. 12 months later, they filed for bankruptcy. But I had a bunch of stock. That's not cool. Bought it back. Like, unbelievable story. Way more stress than I needed in my life. Um, bought it back, ran it for another four years, um, found the right acquirer for it, sold it in May of 2007, um, and had, had been business dating um, somebody named Randy Eisenman. And by business dating, like, we just met and, like, he was a CEO and I was a CEO. And we're just like, we like you. I like you. Like, we had no idea what was going to happen. We're just like, we should spend some more time together. Um, and we both had a deep sense of caring about things like values and culture. And, and we met because of a leadership course, a Stegen leadership course. Um, so we spent a couple hours together um, for years complaining. Because like entrepreneurs complain a lot. Like if you actually know them, we're serial complainers. Um, but we'll do something about it too. And that's what happened. Like. Randy and I are complaining about these capital guys and these venture people and private equity and Wall Street. And we just bitched about it for years. And as entrepreneurs do, finally, we're like, well, let's do something about it. And that was the birth of Satori at this table in some little small town at a Chili's restaurant that was in between our two offices. Um, what if we could build the investment firm that we wanted to take capital from? And that was the genesis of, of Satori Capital, which I've, this, we will, well, we launched in 2008. So imagine in 2008, we start a business and we're saying crazy things like culture matters and not everything that creates value fits on a P&L and long-term perspective matters and Maybe we should look at our environmental footprint if we're a manufacturer and just crazy stuff like that. Um, it, was, it was crazy enough. So, so, you know, Randy and I had both been very successful. I'd had great exits. Randy had also been an investor for a while at, at Goldman Sachs. We took this story to Wall Street and we're like, we can see clearly we have this idea around conscious capitalism and stakeholders and an ecosystem of business and long-term holding and blah, blah, blah. And we 
told this story to Wall Street and the pension funds and all that. And it wasn't even like we got a no. We got polite chuckles and head pats. They <laughs> patted us on our oh, that's so sweet. Oh. And fortunately, we had been through this ride before because I did, you know, an internet company in 96. Randy's claim to fame was um, he started an app store for the Nokia phones and Blackberries and Palm Pilots, like before the iPhone launch. So he was like 2000 to, you know, 2007. Um, and Randy is like this masterful guy at timing. He sold that business the same quarter Apple launched an iPhone. Which, wow. You know, like just, I don't know, man, the luckiest guy on the planet or the smartest guy on the planet. Um, yeah. So we're running around telling the story and people are like laughing at us. And it, it didn't hurt our feelings. We're just like, okay, seen this movie before. Um, and so we were just like patient and kept chugging away at it and chugging away at it. And, and the, that was really the essence of it. It was like, what if we could be the private equity firm that we, we as entrepreneurs would be excited about taking capital from? So, so to your point about expectation setting, um, we do a lot of like, look, here's how this works. And then like these things are going to happen in this order. We send people a project plan with who owns what and not the, you know, 700 page version of it. But like if it's on a page, here's what's going to happen and here's what order. Sometimes we tell them, hey, this week, about this week is when you're going to start to be irritated at us because we're asking yes. a bunch of questions. And you have two jobs. Like, we'll tell them straight up, you're going to have two jobs. Because you got to run this business and don't forget to keep running the business. But we're curious. And one of the things I think that, that's helped us um, is we, we talk to people about, like, what's our job? Like, we're a steward of capital for other CEOs. Because that's, the, by the way, the, the punchline here, the Wall Street crowd never figured us out. But we went and talked to our CEO friends. And they're like, that sounds great. Here's money. It's our job to figure out, is this business something that we should invest in, that it, it is what everybody says it is? Like, that's literally our job is to ask questions and to get prudent. Um, and that, that helps a little bit. That, but we'll say, yeah, it's about week four, maybe week five, when you're going to be tired of the, another status call on, you know, our 17 questions that, that maybe have never been asked before. But our objective is, if we get diligence right, on the day we close, we're ready to be a good partner for you. We know enough to actually be useful to you. Because I'm, I don't like capital that's just a hitchhiker. John Mackey said this once, and it really stuck with me that a lot of capital is just a hitchhiker. They show up, put money in, they get part of the company, and then they just go along for the ride. I'm like, no, we, we actually got to do some work. Um, so the the more we can explain the process um, and you know anticipate like this is coming, and I've been there myself twice. Um, that seems to help, but it doesn't make it go away. Yeah, yeah. How important is it? I mean, I've seen, geez, I've seen some bad advisors out there, um, whether they're representing legal, financial, commercial, you know, we've seen them all. But I've also seen the polar opposite of that. I've seen amazing people on the other side of the table. How, how important is it from your perspective Um if the other team have really good advisors, you know, is that going to increase the chances of success of the deal? How important is it that they've got good, a good team around them? Yeah, so the, the worst 
thing we can get is bad advisors as a buyer when the sellers got bad advisors um because often and it's it's bad for the seller too and i'll I'll use the legal example um i'm really clear in my book you don't need an attorney you need an m a attorney because yes. it's, a, it's a specialized discipline and there are things in there that sort of everybody's agreed to i don't know how working capital works or how fundamental reps work or something like that. And we've been in these situations where the deal couldn't close because their advisor was telling them something that bluntly their advisor like didn't understand. If their advisor had called their M&A person inside their firm, they'd have been, oh no, that's how that works. And I'm actually going to give you a specific example because this whole fundamental, like if I could put more content in my book like i would put an appendix about fundamental reps yes it's a thing and people get really torqued out about it and fundamental reps means stuff like you own the company and like that's the big one like you own the company and there's no fraud and if if you don't own the company i can get all the money back because you don't own the company and this poor guy like his attorney got him all spooled up about well what if you ask for all the money back i'm like Okay, but that only happens if you don't own the company. As long as you own the company, yeah. we're good. Um, anyway, like this fundamental reps thing is, if you've got a good advisor, they're like, here's exactly how this works. Stop talking about this. What we should talk about is this other issue about a knowledge qualifier or something like that. And so yeah. I've seen over and over again, the bad advisors still do as much work as many hours. It's just on all the wrong things. Yeah, and by the yeah. way, I don't think like we're not incentive. We don't get a better deal when there's bad advisors. Like it just it's just harder, and you end up fighting over goofy stuff. And probably more likely to fail, right? It's just it's one of those things. Everyone spends all this time and effort and money, and just and to have them fall over because you've just got people agitating. And I, I've I've seen a few instances where we've had. The buyer, and we've done a number of cross-border transactions, so it adds a different element of taxes and all sorts of different things. And, um, you know, you have the foreign company hires a local guy to do financial due diligence. And sometimes that, those advisors, they've actually never built their own businesses ever before. They're almost accounting purists, you know, and they want to see everything exactly how the theory lays it out. And if it's slightly different or if they report in a slightly different way, they miss the commerciality of the arrangement and just agitate around, you know, they fixate on things that actually aren't necessarily that important. Like the buyer has the information. Yes, maybe they want to put in a new ERP system when they buy it or whatever, but it's it's funny to see what people focus on and sometimes it really is not that important in the deal. Yeah, it's very common. Um, yeah. You know, I think while we're on this topic of focus, um, this question that that was a really central to my book is this, what's most important. It's very easy to get distracted by a thousand small things in the deal. And sometimes they'll get under your skin. Like it's happened to me. I see it happen with entrepreneurs. It happens even when we're, you know, doing exits where there's just some little tier two or tier three thing that gets under your skin and just starts to bug you. And then you wake up the next day and it's bugging you more and bugging you more. And the antidote to that is to figure out what you actually care about and to do that before you go into this thing and to get yeah. clear enough to get in 
get it down in writing about what success looks like. And that, so, so I actually, this one was a big enough deal that I actually made workbooks for people to do this as a companion to the book. Like, and I don't, like, I'm not in the author business. I just, like, somebody had to write this book. And then I realized it's getting really clear on what is most important, um, was the most important thing. So if you're clear, as an example, this is a great culture fit. What's going to happen with my employees is a good outcome. I'm happy with what's going to happen with customers. I'm satisfied personally with whatever it means. And that might mean I join a big company and I do the corporate thing for a while. It might mean I get to go away, whatever. Like I make no moral judgment on what you want. You just got to get clear about what you want. And so I found that if you have clarity on that, a lot of the little stuff that comes up that's irritating, you can, you can kind of move through it. Cause you go, you know what? These five things mattered most and I'm getting those. <clears throat> and this silly little thing that isn't fair and shouldn't be true and, and, and those, yeah, it's not fair, but it doesn't actually matter. Um, yeah. So, so that I, I built these workbooks, they're free. They're on my website, sonnyvanderbeck.com. Cool. Just, you just download them. And if you fill them out, um, it, it helps a lot with the aggravation. Beautiful. I'm going to put some links to the, um, to your website. Um, I'll throw in your LinkedIn and a few other things on, on here. And, and of course, the link to Amazon where people can find your book, Selling Without Selling Out, How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul, which um, you'll probably see a new sale coming through for myself. So I'll go and have a look at it as well. Um, Sonny, one final question. You know, you talked about defining success. How do you define success now? You know, I mean, all your experience, you've done a lot of different things. You're clearly a successful guy financially and all those things. So, but how do you personally define success now in your life? Did I leave it better than I found it? In every Love it. Sonny, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's been great chatting to you. I, I love hearing about your story. You've got a lot of advice to give and, and you know, you're out there helping, helping people, which is what we love as well. So, um, yeah, appreciate your time and, yeah, thanks again. Hey, great chat. Thanks so much. Pleasure. And thank you all for listening to another episode of the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did and we'll see you on the next episode. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.